0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am honored, flattered, and excited to have on my podcast today uh, Oren Kerr, a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley. Not to put too much of a fine point on it, but Oren is, in my opinion, the most important and leading criminal procedure law scholar in the United States. If you don't believe me, you can believe Paul Curran, who runs the tax law prof list or something. Oren, you're the fifth most cited scholar Today in America, um, and the people above you are people like Posner and Sunstein. So um, you should be flattered by that. I think um, you've written over you know 40. Art- you've written over 60 articles, 40 of which have been cited in judicial opinions. That's amazing to have 40 different articles cited in judicial opinions. Is really something. Um, You're the author of numerous casebooks, again, too many law review articles to count. You blog at Volokh, you blog at Lawfare, and you even have your own podcast, or you did anyway, uh, called The Legal Academy, and we'll talk about that. Welcome to Supreme Myths. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Uh, You know, Eric, it's delightful to be here. I've been a, a frequent listener of the show, and I've loved it. We've, we've messaged a little bit about how much I love the show and have since the beginning. And so I was, I was delighted and flattered to be asked. And as, as for the metrics you mentioned, you know, if arbitrary meaningless metrics work my way, I'm prepared to accept that as deeply profound insights into the nature of the world. Sure. Why not?
0: I'm only doing this podcast because of you. It's really true. You, you started the legal Academy podcast during the darkest times of COVID, I think. Um, and I thought they were great. And I listened, I told you that I, I listened to all of them. Um, and I wasn't ready to start mine until I could figure out how another law professor did, you know, did it. I have different styles. We have different styles, obviously. But um, I, I really admired it. And, and frankly, honestly, I wouldn't be doing this. One more quick personal story. Uh, your dean, Ern Chemerinsky, is, is a dear personal friend of mine and has been for decades. And I was in San Francisco a few years ago, about three years ago. And I hadn't been there in a long time. And I hadn't been to Berkeley in a long time. And this is about six months after he became dean, something like that. And... Um, it was about 48 degrees, in San, 50 degrees in San Francisco. My wife and I were freezing. And she was going off to do a work thing. And I was going off to have lunch with Erwin. So I got on the BART. I think, yeah, I got on the BART and I went out to Berkeley. And when I left San Francisco, I was wearing a coat and it was freezing. And I came out of the subway and it was like 75 degrees and sunny. And it felt like I was in paradise. And then Irwin gave me a tour of the school and I'm like, I started at Georgia State 30 years ago. I'm going to finish at Georgia State. I've never wanted to leave. If there was a law school in the country that could tempt me, it would be Berkeley. What a place to be.
1: Are you enjoying it? it's uh it's lovely i mean i have to say pre-pandemic berkeley was better yes. than pandemic berkeley yes. uh, I, I, yes. I had a few months before everything shut down and ever yes. since then it's been a lot like being stuck in a room for yes. the last year so yes. um but it is uh it's a beautiful place and berkeley is just a fun town and the weather is amazing uh, yeah. so i feel very very blessed yeah. to, to be here it's a the, the
0: very first thing i asked erwin was how do you like being here instead of at uc irvine where he was dean before and he said i love it it's fantastic except for one thing and I said, what's that? He said, it's freezing all the time. And I said, freezing? It's 75 degrees. What are you? Th-? And you're from Chicago. Anyway, um, all right. So I'm going to announce at the outset that I know very little about the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendments. I know a little, but, but you're one of my guests. You know, usually I have con law people on and I can hold my own. I am not going to try to hold my own. Um, I, I don't know much about criminal procedure. So my first question to you, and and people who know me and my work will understand why I'm asking this, where does text and history come in? How how should judges deal with text and history in Fourth, let's say, Fourth Amendment, search and seizure cases? How should they do that? Is that too broad a question?
1: Is is it a dumb question? No, it's not a dumb question at all. Let let, let me narrow it a little bit, because if we're talking about what lower courts should do, you know, what judges could mean a lot of different judges, and Lower courts, you know, I, I'm, of, I'm of the view that like lower court judges should not be theorists. They just like read the Supreme Court's cases and follow whatever the Supreme Court wants. Right. And if the Supreme Court has done something wrong, that's not a lower court judge's problem. And so, yeah. so you know, all those grand theoretical questions, I think just lower court judges should not be playing in that sandbox. Yeah. Um, in terms of what a Supreme Court justice should do, I think the history and the text of the Fourth Amendment are really focused on a set of problems that are no longer in dispute and no longer really the focus of anything. And that was whether the government should be able to get general warrants. Uh, so this is really the history of the Fourth Amendment. Back in the 1750s, 1760s, the uh, uh, king's officials were getting these warrants that said, we can kind of go anywhere and look for anything. And then the king's officials would go and break into people's houses and just right. go house to house to house <laughs> and take anything. And, and a couple of uh, judges said, you can't do that. You, to, to break into someone's house. You need to have some sort of warrant that's you know about where you're going and what you're looking for, and it it you know the the colonists love this idea and and this idea that you should limit the government's power to search and you know break into houses and take things away uh was very popular and so the Fourth Amendment is very much focused on general warrants and today we're concerned much more with other questions because today first of all, we live in a world where police exist. Uh, <laughs> There was no policing as we know it in the uh, 18th century, and the problems that we deal with today are so different from the problems that were animating the enactment of the Fourth Amendment that um, the text and the history usually can't resolve the kinds of questions that you want to have answered today, and and an interesting example of this is the remedy for, for Fourth Amendment violations. The Fourth Amendment says nothing about the remedies zero it, it's written in the sort of, um no warrant shall issue the right shall not be <laughs> violated nothing about what if it is violated right and so that creates a puzzle what do you do you know what what should the remedies be in a world where suddenly you have police officers everywhere and what should the goals be and and I, I the text and the history I I don't think really can answer those questions um and and there's a lot we now have a lot of originalist judges sort of trying to make sense of the Fourth Amendment and I I think there's a lot of Efforts to um, take steps, which are are trying to make more of the history than we actually have. Right. That, that that
0: that makes total sense to me. Would would people like Randy Barnett and Jot would 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 diehard originalists like Mike Rappaport and Randy Barnett and other people would they agree that the history is really not helpful in most of these cases? I don't think they write about those cases, frankly. Um, so I don't know if they thought about it. But but I would. But do you think they would carve it out as well?
1: I don't think they would have a strong view because I don't think they have have studied it um, that that closely enough to say. But um, relating to this, I have an an article that's um, uh, forthcoming. It was uh, just accepted this past cycle called Cats as Originalism. This is the Cats' Reasonable Expectation of Privacy Test. Um, And you have Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas ripping cats. And Justice Scalia did that before then. This is basically a made-up 60s Warren court Kind of non—it's not real law. We need right. to go to the real law right. test. Uh, and I, I, I argue that basically, almost nothing is known about what the, the original public meaning of searches and seizures um, uh, at, 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 at going going back to 1791, and that you can actually understand Katz is very much an effort to try to answer what the constitutional text means. And and you can just frame it as an originalist question, and sort of everyone, everyone's happy. The originalist have it as a text matter. And, the, you know, people that don't want precedent, they like that because it's not really deviating from precedent. And so, so I think, I think there's a lot of, there's symbolic battles being fought, but I don't think they play out a lot in terms of different rules when it comes to fourth amendment law specifically. Can we go
0: back to 1791 for a minute? Um, and this question is going to display my ignorance on this topic, but I, I assume the fourth, fifth, sixth and eighth amendments, like all of the bill of rights, we not meant to apply to the states at first, right
1: right, right. yeah, I think I think we can accept that as, as yeah. correct. So it's interesting,
0: they were really against general warrants, and they didn't like them and all that, but really what they were worried about was the tyranny of the federal government. They weren't worried about their own state governments because they didn't or maybe what state constitutions had their own uh, provisions? Is that what's going
1: on there? Yeah, exactly. So um, the, with the Fourth Amendment, with prohibitions on unreasonable searches and seizures, you start um, the Massachusetts Bill of Rights and Virginia's declaration, for, I forget the exact term, the Declaration of Rights or Declaration of Liberties or something like right. that. Um, and you have, uh, of the colonies, most of them have equivalents to the okay. Fourth Amendment. Um, and then actually, the the drafting of the federal Fourth Amendment it's, it's you know, the, it, you can see they sort of picking and choosing pieces of the pre-existing constitutional text at the state level. Um, and no, there's no sense that they're really sort of trying to do anything new or that these are understood to be all that different. I think it's more that there was a historical, there was a tradition that was then pretty fresh in the minds of the colonists at the time. And it was kind of that thing, we want that too for, right. for this government. So right. it was not really thought to be a in innovation, it was doing what the states were doing. That, that, makes, that,
0: makes, that makes total sense to me. I didn't mention this earlier. You have a huge presence on Twitter. I think you have 95,000 followers or something. Um, but you were talking the other day about border searches and what we should do with computers at border searches. But leaving aside border searches for the moment, I'm assuming part of the reason we intuitively think that originalism can't help us too much they didn't have the equivalent of computers. I mean, we can try to make some analogies, but they, they're not, you, you know, the, 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 my iPhone has more information than I ever had in any physical space in my life prior to getting an iPhone, for example, you know, um, and my computer has even more. Um, how, how do we deal with that? I mean, do we just say, well, judges are going to do the best they can to come up with the best decisions, and we know that they're going to make it
1: up, but hopefully well. I mean, how do we deal with that? So I think it depends on the context. Uh, computers change some things and don't change other things. Um, but there's a there's a consistent theme in the development of the Fourth Amendment law, uh, in development of Fourth Amendment law dealing with technological change. Um, one one of the things that attracts me to Fourth Amendment law is this problem of technological change is just ever present. So the government is always coming up with new ways of investigating cases and people engaged in criminal activity are coming up with new ways of evading the government and and we're always using new technologies. And um, then you have these prior rules that exist in a world before that technology and then they have to deal with the new technology. And sometimes those rules End up leading to really weird results and then the supreme court has to figure out like what do we do with this old rule the new technology um and i think a favorite example of this is cars 100 years ago right so you know in 1925 the u.s supreme court in carroll versus the united states enacts new fourth amendment rules for searching cars though probable cause is required but a warrant is not required and 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 you, you end up with like car jurisprudence in the fourth <laughs> amendment and i think this actually makes a lot of sense because this is a recurring fact pattern and the dynamics of car seizures and searches are really different from homes and persons. And so it makes sense that you would say, you know, reasonableness is just very different in the car setting because it is this sort of recurring, recurring problem. And, and you wanna make sure the rules uh, that are created sort of re- reflect the goals of the Fourth Amendment, but are not stuck with kind of common law rules that were based in an era that did not have cars. Um, and I, I've called this this methodology equilibrium adjustment because everything <laughs> needs a fancy academic title. Um, but But the basic idea is when a prior legal rule becomes so out of whack based on the new technology that it's being applied to, when you have kind of a transformative technology, judges, justices are naturally going to be drawn towards rules which are trying to restore the prior Balance of power that the 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 rules before the new technology were trying to address, and so and I think what what I find interesting about this is that justices from all interpretive traditions are attracted to this. Originalists have arguments for why they should do it. Living constitutionalists right. have arguments <laughs> for why they should do it. And they all kind of do the same thing phrased in different ways. Um, so uh, new technologies are just always going to be a challenge for Fourth Amendment law and and a, a cause for kind of new rules, which is basically what you're seeing in the computer setting
0: today. So I, I have so- a couple more questions about criminal procedure, but I, I want to di- digress for one minute, then I'll come back to criminal procedure. So it, it, it occurs to me that everything you just said makes 100% sense to me. I, I think the same is true for other areas of constitutional law. I, I'm not making, what I'm about to say, I'm not suggesting what the appropriate balance today should be between gun rights and gun safety. I'm not, I'm saying nothing about that. I am saying that AK-47s have no analog in 1788. And whatever rules judges are going to come up with, and again, I'm not proposing any, to deal with that problem, the idea that we can do it on an originalist basis seems—it ins- seems like if we can't figure out how computers should be searched by the police because they didn't have any real analogs, the same is true for AK-47. Do you think I'm crazy about that?
1: Uh, I don't think it's crazy. I think it all just depends on what level of generality you think the constitutional text or rules should be applied to. Is it right. sort of, there was this overall goal of that particular constitutional provision, and here's how it plays out with the new technological world we're in, or, well, no, it's the text says this, and we look at the meaning of that text. And it, I, I do think it kind of depends... I have kind of a provision by provision sense of, yes, of the concept of that than like a broad so 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 you know when we were we were emailing a little bit beforehand about what we were talking about and 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 I was you you phrased the question sort of what's my approach to interpreting the Fourth <laughs> yeah. Amendment? And I realized like my answer is it really depends on what's the question. Like I have a sense of what how the courts should approach what is a search how they should approach reasonableness how they should approach remedies and those are senses that i have from like you know years and years of studying this stuff and working with the materials and having kind of coming to my own views yeah. and when i think about how the how other parts of the constitution should be applied i don't have a developed sense of those at this point at least so you know i i i kind of come from a, a generally speaking like a you know what would be a judicial restraint kind of tradition i don't think courts should should innovate very much it generally makes me uncomfortable when courts do that um but but i think it really depends on the provision and and there're perfectly good arguments for why courts should do different things for different provisions based on different histories and texts and precedent
0: fair enough and and that and that makes me ask another question that's a little bit inside baseball but not too much So, uh, so there really are, I mean, Er Erwin is actually an an exception to this. And to some degree, you're, I think you're being modest about your expertise in other areas of constitutional law. But generally speaking, the casebooks, the curriculum, I don't know any law professor who teaches criminal procedure in the same course as we teach equal protection, due process, First Amendment. It's really a separate, the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Amendments are a separate category pedagogically scholarly-wise, I think, um, and it's always seemed, so my colleague Narej, I don't know if you know him, but Narej and I talk a lot, and he's a crim pro expert, um, and, and he and I have been really puzzled by this. Do you, why is that? I mean, because it's all con law. I mean, it, you are trying to, uh, you know, apply the words of an old document to modern conditions in a context where we hope judges don't do not do too much, but do do enough. You know, wh- why the separation?
1: so my understanding is that it's basically a product of the 1960s warren court criminal oh, procedure revolution Interesting. where suddenly there were so many developments and so much new law it basically became a new a new course and 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 my my primary source for this is yale Camisar, who <laughs> um, who was the co-author who started uh, the criminal procedure first criminal procedure casebook and i'm, I'm uh, honored to say i'm one of you know one of the authors i joined yeah. maybe Twelve years ago, um, and um, he originally had a con law casebook. I think it was with Jesse Choper and yes, maybe one yes, other person yes. that, that had. Um, and and uh, uh, it, it had a criminal procedure component originally, and then it became like a spinoff when suddenly you start getting like Miranda becomes the main <laughs> one. But you, have, um, I think the first edition came out in '63, and it was right after Gideon versus Wainwright suddenly yep. incorporates. Um, so you get incorporation in the 1960s and all of the Bill of Rights are suddenly applying to the states and the Warren Court is doing all these things and, and it became a new field. And and, and and if you look at the first edition of the Camusar casebook, which I think was 63 or 64, it's you know 300 pages and then the second edition comes out right after Miranda and it's like, Pages. <laughs> like, so I think it really is like a product of the era uh, of, of the 1960s when suddenly this becomes a huge topic. But isn't in that
0: interesting? So I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And isn't that interesting that we didn't really think of criminal procedure separately until the 1960s? Speaking of Miranda, I, I still have one big question I want to ask you about this. But speaking of Miranda, um, my progressive friends, I'm not sure I would include you as a progressive, my progressive friends say to me all the time and I have no answer, I don't know the answer that Miranda did more harm than good that in fact over time, not a writer but eventually all Miranda did was it gave police cover to do things they shouldn't do and it didn't really help and I, and I never really talked to someone I wouldn't label conservative, uh, progressive about that do you agree with that? Do you? What's your take on that?
1: Yeah we'll, we'll never know what would have happened if Miranda hadn't been decided?
0: Fair enough. Yeah.
1: So, so it's totally possible that there would have been more. And and I, I think this is you know way oversimplifications. But if we're yeah. sort of making it sort of police versus yeah citizen as yeah. our basic yes. you know axis here, yeah. I think you could have had more citizen friendly rules if Miranda hadn't come down when it did.
0: Okay. Um, That's what they say. That's past- exactly what they say. Or.
1: And 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 now there are understandable reasons why the Supreme Court in 1966 would have thought to the contrary. Um, uh, but you know, I think history has shown that that's really a mixed bag. Especially because Miranda comes down five to four, and then you get a sequence of Supreme Court justices that don't like Miranda very much and are interpreting it narrowly for the most part. I mean, it's, it's 50 or 60 cases or more than that, so so it's hard to generalize. But generally speaking, today. You know, Miranda has been interpreted relatively narrowly compared to the original decision, Um, and it created a sense, I think, in the states that the U.S. Supreme Court had answered the question, sort of, this was a, a dispute that was now done. Right. Um, right. And once the U.S. Supreme Court says, like, you know, we hereby, you know, boom, here are the rules— <laughs> I think you know a lot of state legislators and members of congress are like well okay the u.s supreme court has solved it so we don't have to anymore and it it cut off a lot of debate um uh and and we just we just don't know what what yeah um uh, what, yeah. what that world would have looked like so this i think it's, it's possible that that's right um probably not that impact probably wouldn't have been the case in you know the 20 years after miranda's decided but one consequence of miranda's that we're sort of it's there and it's, you know, now 55 years old, it may just sort of always be there. And it's going to have this life that goes on decades past when the Warren court says, let's try this. Um, And the current Supreme court is not kind of a, Hey, let's try this out for size and see where it goes kind of attitude. (laughs) So, so your friends may be right that that was um, in the end, uh, at least in retrospect, something that Maybe didn't pan out. Yeah,
0: it's kind of a shocker, you know, to those of us who don't study this. Because I, I always kind of assumed before I started law teaching that Miranda was a good thing and that it was it helped it was a very pro-defendant type of thing. Um but I have a lot of friends who don't think that. Um you said at the very beginning of this that I asked you how how Fourth Amendment cases should be decided, and you distinguished between lower court judges and Supreme Court judges. I want to go back to that for one minute. Um so, If the legal standard for anything, whether it's torts, criminal law, whatever the issue is, reasonableness, you know, uh, unreasonable searches and seizures are prohibited, reasonable searches are not prohibited, Um, how much is grand theory and how much is on the ground? I I mean, when you said grand theory, is there a lot of grand theory? I mean, it seems so fact-based to me that we would expect lower court judges to play the predominant role in fleshing this out because theory is not going to answer the question. What is reasonable? What is unreasonable? Is that a fair diagnosis?
1: You know, I think not all reasonablenesses are created equally. (laughs) If that that makes sense, Um, you know, reasonableness in the context of the fourth amendment has a very specific framework for basically means a valid warrant or one of the exceptions to the warrant requirement. Um, and then the exceptions to the warrant requirement are defined with rules because there's you know the the number of searches and number of seizures in a system the size of the United States you know there're like 15 million arrests every right. year or something right. like that and and you know the, the scale is just incredible so it's all very ruleified at the application level and then so judges are not in a position where they're saying you know what is what is truly reasonable instead they're saying like oh doctrinal framework Here's this exception. Here's that exception. Here's this rule. Here's that rule. And so a lot of it is actually just settled rules that that needs to be applied, even though the constitutional text under the you know, sort of the, the headline banner text would be reasonableness. There's there's just a lot that's turned into rules for lower court judges. to apply.
0: That's really interesting. OK, yeah, I, I would. That's surpri- that surprises me. And I did, again, one more one more thing in the ocean of things I don't know about criminal procedure, but that that. That that that's interesting. Um, all right, one last criminal procedure question, and you may duck this question if you want because it's going to be a hard one. Okay. Um, my public defender friend, and this goes back to law school, nineteen eighty-two for me. So this goes back forty. You know how I'm bad at math, but my whole life, my whole professional life, my friends who either worked in public defenders' offices are public defenders, and I'm talking about New York, Georgia, California. You know. They all say something very similar that has always really interested me. And I know you do a lot of work in this area, so I might put you in a tough spot. But th- this is what they say to me. Leaving aside race issues, not forget race issues for a minute. I mean, you can't do that, but forget race issues for a minute. They think, you know, generally speaking, police will excuse me, most police will try to do the right thing. But here's the thing. To find out whether somebody is guilty, to try to figure out, is suspect A the real perpetrator? They'll follow the rules. But once they are convinced that that person is the guilty person, they will break the rules continuously and consistently, Because generalizing, because in their heads, he's guilty. And technicality should not get in the way of us putting that murderer, rapist, arsonist behind bars. So that... Really, a lot of these public defenders have great skepticism about the integrity of police officers. Of course, that's their job. But, you know, once the the guilty person is identified, do you have any thoughts about any of that?
1: Um, so it's, it's a great question. I'm I have thoughts, although my thoughts are mostly that, you know, it's always hard to. This is generalizing about something which by its nature is hard to generalize sure. about right so yeah, um, sure. and, and you know it may vary in terms of place in terms of training i think st- very strongly varies you know state versus federal is going to be a big yes. difference um, uh, there uh, and so and so um, you know era time uh, will make make a difference i think it's, it's clear that the the incentive to um, break the rules is going to be strongest when The officer is convinced that it's a bad guy Um, and part of that is going to be um, limits on the exclusionary rule where the officer may think well you know at at this point um uh you know we we got them or at least the important thing is getting them and then you know strengthening the exclusionary rule can help create more of an incentive to make sure those constitutional rules are are followed um but but it's 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 um this is one of those things where you know you it's I'm not there. There, you know, I have some experience with this stuff, and it's it's anecdotal, and I'm not sure how much I can rely on it. In part because it's dated, and I've been a professor sure. now for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in part because I sort of hear different things from different people, and it's kind of. I'm, so I'm 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 reluctant to to have any. I don't have any strong personal yeah. view of like this is right yeah. or this is wrong. I mean, but it's obviously I mean, an important issue. And then and then you know you mentioned the race issue. That's obviously yeah. you say we're, we're putting this aside, but that is of course an yes. enormous. You know yeah. that. It's an impossible thing to put aside that we have just put aside. That's agree. obviously an important.
0: Um, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think my instinct based on intuition and living a long time, not expertise, is um, it also may depend on the crime and how bad the guy is. You know, I mean, if you are a serial killer out, you know, it's different than than a shop. You know, I, I think that there may be a difference there, but I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, all right. Great stuff. Thank you. And I just, and I, I, one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I learn a lot <laughs> and I just learned a tremendous amount. I hope other people did too. Um, so I want to shift gears completely. Um, and now, and this is going to get a little bit inside baseball, but it's your fault because you're the one who started a podcast called The Legal Academy and you're the one who decided to have 25 episodes or something on. Law schools, you know, and law and all, you know, so, so I'm because you have listened to a lot of smart people, the best people, really, speaking of Donald Trump, the best people on this issue. But you have you've had leading experts on kind of how law schools should go. Deans, the dean of former dean of Northwestern and all, all kinds of other people who's a friend of mine, all kinds of other people. So a couple of questions about this. First, why did you start your podcast? What drove you to do it? And why did you focus on legal education?
1: The pandemic made me do it. Me too, I by the, way. the real yeah. <laughs> You and the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> I was stuck at home, completely isolated, and feeling like I had no connections with the world, and that everybody else was also stuck at home, yeah. feeling isolated, yeah. having no connections with the world. And I thought, what do I love most about talking to people and going into work? It's having these great conversations about like what are we, what are we doing, and yeah. what you know what what is our institution doing? And what, you know, this is like a time for thinking through all these great questions. And so, and so I actually kind of created a podcast, which would be, what were the conversations I would love to have if I could pick any colleagues and just like talk to them about what I wanted to talk to them about. That's, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's where it came from. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, and and it it was great. I mean, I I loved it. I had, I guess, 16 episodes and then I'm on pause for now. And I'm I'm not sure if I'm gonna do a round two. Maybe it depends on how the pandemic goes. If the <laughs> pandemic is bad this summer, then, then I'll do a round two because we am right. stuck at home again. By
0: the way, I, I hope but, uh, I hope that's not I hope that doesn't happen, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> certainly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um so that that's where it came from. And um I I mean I think we're we're so lucky to have these jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think being a lot like it's it's incredible that this job exists. It is just in I, I wake up every day and I just feel so fortunate. Um, to be able to think about the issues we want to think about and live in this world where we're like, how can we educate people and what are the important ideas and what you know, it's amazing, it's incredible and 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 I think time spent thinking about the institutions and what we're doing and that is 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 helpful and 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 um, we can learn from that in ways that help us guide our institutions better and that's why I wanted to do
0: it. One of the legends of our business, John Hart Ely. um, I had to call him in the early '90s when I was a very young law professor, and for various reasons. And he was at, he he was he was at Berkeley for most of his career, I think. But in fact, he may have been dean at Berkeley. I think um, I'm not sure about that. But he was at Berkeley for a long time.
1: Stan- Stanford, right? I should. Know you're right. That, but you're right.
0: Stanford. You're right. I'm sorry. You're right. Um, and um, that shows. I mean, last time I talked to him was 1992. So that <laughs> forgive me for that. But when I researched him, I, I'd read his book already, but but his big book. But but I found a quote of his that I. I use all the time. I think it's one of the greatest quotes in law professor history, and I, I know you're going to love it. So I, I'm not. I'm building this up because if you don't know it, I know you're going to love it. He said publicly on numerous occasions that being a tenured law professor—not pre tenured but a tenured law professor—is an unconscionably cushy job. That was his. That was, and it kind of is, right? I mean, it kind of is. I mean, it's um, you know, we not that we don't work hard, but we have so much freedom and liberty to do what, what we want. And, and and I really respect him. I respected his work. And I, I think that was a great quote. And and I think it's, I assume you agree with that to some, just to some regard. I do. I mean,
1: I don't know if I would use the word cushy, okay. uh, because that, that suggests like we're hanging out doing nothing. And <laughs> Some people are not, no one listening to this. Yeah. Report, but there um, yeah, <laughs> are some people um, who are, but, but I mean, it, it is the, the freedom to focus on any question that you yep. want to focus on and be like, oh, I think this is a cool question. I'll spend the next year thinking about it. Like, right. That's amazing. And yeah. you, I, I'll, I'll give you another another example yeah. of this. My first day as a law professor, I had negotiated with the dean at GW where I was at the time to start on a particular day and um, you know, it's the day I start the job and I overslept. Um, <laughs> I set my alarm for like 8 p.m. instead of 8 a.m. Uh, and, and so I wake up at like nine o'clock, I'm like, oh my god, I'm late for work. And I put on my clothes and I run run to the office. I'm like, first day, I'm so sorry. And the uh, um head secretary is like late. <laughs> there's no there's this sort of concept of being late, like. Welcome. That, <laughs> I love this job, um, and, and and it's it's not that we're not working; it's that you can work whenever you want and whenever whenever it inspires you. I mean, it's it's incredible that this. Uh, the way I put it uh, early on is I can't believe this job uh, exists in a market economy, and then, of course that raises the question of whether it is a market yes, economy. Yes, I agree with
0: that. But, my yeah, my second year, I was assigned some committee work for something, and I was handling it in a certain way, and a professor who had been here for a long time, he's retired now, knocked on my door. And said, Eric, on this committee, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to do this and this and this and this and this. Because I was, I said, what are you doing? This isn't a law firm. Relax. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I wasn't sure how to take it, but I'll never forget it. He was like, this is not, I worked for Gibson Dunn for a while. This is not Gibson Dunn. This is, this is different. You know, and I, I thought that, I thought that was interesting. Uh, left field question. You did 16 podcasts with really great people. What's one of the most surprising things you've learned?
1: I thought um, thought that the the episode that maybe I learned the most from was from uh, Emma Kaufman, Mm -hmm. who's an absolutely fantastic uh, new professor at NYU, describing her experience on the entry-level market, and she was an amazing candidate and had just the the It was sort of an insight into the entry level market that didn't exist in the same way when I went on the entry- level market twenty years ago when it was much more haphazard. And it was like, yeah, you filled out the form and you <laughs> drafted an article. and yeah. you just sort of like,. Hi. <laughs> and so um, and so that I thought was incredibly interesting. And i've heard back I've heard feedback from folks that um have listened to the podcast that are interested in being a law professor that that was the one that that they also kind of gravitated to because it was an insight into a process that you don't you don't hear and this was this was also part of the agenda of 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 the podcast that i had which is um so much of law professor knowledge is specialized insider knowledge in terms of like what you should do how do you how do you get a lateral offer how do you go on the entry level market all those kinds of things you need to know people to really sort of or at least traditionally you need to know them to really benefit from it and i love democratizing insider knowledge to sort of spread you know take away the 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 insider advantage and let everyone know here's how it works and put everybody on the same playing field um, so that it's not just, you know, the person who graduates, you know, editor chief of the Yale Law Journal and clerk for the Supreme Court and right. goes to Akila Marr or something and says, what should I do? Who gets the <laughs> benefit of that? We all get to hear what Akila Marr has right. to say. Right. Um, and so and so that was part of that agenda. And that that episode in particular, I thought, worked.
0: Yeah, I, I, I thought that was great. I thought she was great. Um, I think I'm ten year, about 10 years older than you, give or take. Um, when I went on the market in 1991, um, I went on, you know. As a as a Emory Vanderbilt Emory College Vanderbilt Law School, 11, district court 11th circuit clerkship, Gibson Dunn Department of Justice, I have no chance of getting a job today, none, none, almost almost none. I had published I I I had one article accepted for publication, uh, believe it or not, on parochial school aid, <laughs> and I was defending a very conservative position on parochial school aid. but Leaving that aside, um, you know. I've been hiring for 30 years at Georgia State. It's the thing I do the most for my school. Um, Emory and Vanderbilt, which are great universities, not good enough. (laughs) Not today. Um, And, you know, I I know you know this, you know, so Adam Feldman and I wrote a piece for the Journal of Legal Education, and I want to get your opinion about this. 94.8%. So let's call it 95, because I can do that. I can do that math. 95% of professors at the U.S. News top, it's actually 11 ranked law schools because there was a tide for 10th, um, come from the top 10 law schools. 95% of those with American law degrees. That struck us as very bad and very strange because what it does mean is the LSAT determines your career because you don't get into Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, Chicago, Berkeley without doing really well on the LSAT. You just don't. And we thought, and and then that has all kinds of class implications,
1: race implications. Um, I'm curious what you think about that. So I I read your article, and I think it was terrific. I think I emailed you afterwards about how much how much I liked it. I mean, I I, so so there's an understandable reliance understandable to a to an extent, um, uh, reliance on proxies in hiring, just given the scale of how large how many people there are and and there's a lot of sort of like oh i see a certain prestige marker whether it's a clerkship uh whether it's a jd institution whether it's a publication in a certain journal there's a there's sort of like in going through a resume you can do it in five minutes instead of you know an hour to if you just rely on proxies right and 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 i get that um but i think I think legal education. We we sh- we don't need to rely on proxies when we're hiring law professors. Right. Uh, I think again right. at the at the entry level um, law firm hiring, where a firm might get you know like two thousand applications for two spots or something <laughs> like that, and they really have no idea who's good, and they're really hard to figure out. When it comes to law professor hiring, you're pretty. You're, the school's going to have like two or three papers, um, and some recommendate some some references and. Yeah you can like read the paper <laughs> like actually see whether the work is imagine valid. that <laughs> um, and and i i think i think the reliance on proxies given how sort of bespoke legal academic hiring is 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 really troubling um and it's you know i think it's a mixture of tradition and sn- snobbiness and um uh you know uh, just laziness but but I think we'd all be better off. And I I, I love when looking through resumes, when you, when you find somebody whose work is awesome and they don't have elite credentials and right. especially elite right. credentials that maybe like 20 years earlier or 30 years, like a long time ago. Um, I think, aha, here's someone who's just really, really good. Right. Uh and and I'm more enthusiastic if they don't have those credentials, because it means like they've they've got they've gotten there through talent and through ability and through working hard, not through you know, uh, a, an admissions decision when they were 21 years old or something.
0: Right. Like exactly. Right. Or, or the LSAT, which really has no resemblance to anything that law professors should be good at or anything else. Um, so I'm very, I'm very close friends with friends with someone who's now retired, but was Gibson Dunn's Washington DC hiring partner for decades. And, and if people don't know Gibson Dunn in DC is where Ted Olson works and, and, and Scalia's son Either worked there or works there, and it's a very prestigious place to be. And for many, many years, they would not hire anybody from any law school not ranked in the top fifteen or eighteen. Vanderbilt barely made the cut. I mean, I made the cut by one, one slot. <laughs> um, and I would fight, and we were really close friends, so I would fight with him about this. And I finally convinced him to take a chance on the number one person from the University of Kansas. And they did, and he ended up being great. I mean, just great. And since, and once that happened, they then kind I mean, they, generally speaking, Gibson then will only hire Harvard, Yale, Stanford, but they will from time to time find someone special who didn't go to those schools. And it really, I, he thinks, I think it improved the environment and improved the work and improved the diversity, improved everything. Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Chicago, Columbia law schools don't do that. They don't. There is virtually no one at those law schools. Um, who went to University of Kansas, or or or, or you know, or, or even when we did the research for this piece, or and it was fascinating. This might have changed since then, but you know, you know, I blog with Mike Dorf. I'm good friends with Mike. I think Mike is one of the great law professors in the country. Um, cor- there is not a single Cornell grad. There wasn't a single Cornell grad teaching at any top ten law school when we wrote that article. Not one. And Cornell is a 13 is ranked 11th, 12th, 13th. I and mean, Cornell is a great law school by any definition. There are no teachers in the top 10 law schools from Cornell. How is that possible? Isn't that crazy to you? Doesn't that seem strange?
1: It does. And I mean we can we can think of you know individual examples as well. We'd probably share pretty similar views of some great law professors that did not have elite right. JDs who right. are right. probably still to this day undervalued in the teaching market because of it, just because yeah. in trying to get a coalition at any one school, you know, right. it, it could be on a faculty of 50 that 20 don't care about jd institution but if 10 do that could actually be an important 10 people and trying right. to get to right. the rough consensus that right. usually is required to hire someone so right. um i mean it does seem it of, of all the things especially at, to, to go on with a little bit um i i i guess i get it more in an era going back to you know decades ago when hiring really was, like, I guess I mentioned, like, when I went on the market, it was like, you know, you write an article and you fill out the form. And there was a lot of kind of, like, there wasn't a lead-in to becoming a law professor. These days, there's so much of a lead-in. There's, you know, usually people are getting, um, uh, they're writing a couple articles before they're trying to be a VAP, and then they're being VAPs for a couple of years. And so people are showing up with so much more of a record that I think that, you know, should mean there's less reliance on the JD institution. And one of the challenging parts of that is I think the road to the VAPs and all that is recreating the former entry-level hiring. So the folks that are being considered for the VAPs, you know, the the, the VAP schools are, are doing the same things that schools <laughs> used to do right. and look for entry. So right. it's, it's sort of producing itself, but, you know, you certainly hope. You know, over time, people just stop caring where somebody would like. Who cares right. when somebody has a record? Right, uh, and you know, follow the word, Not, not that. So, right. so hopefully it'll get better over time. But it's, it's, it's um, it's a, it's a constant challenger thing. for it's those, um,
0: for those watching or listening here, um, who are not law professors or even lawyers. And I do have some people. Uh, Vap is visiting, visiting assistant professor, um, and it's something that did not exist when I went on the legal market. So, so this is not. This is a new thing. This is a new development, um, and I, I, I'm i I'm unsure myself whether it's a good development or not. I think it would be a great development if the VAP programs didn't replicate the hiring process two years later. You're not going to get a VAP NYU if you went to the University of Kansas. You might, but it's unlikely. I mean, it, it, it's unlikely. Um, so I think— I think that's a problem. We're running out of time. I have so much I want to talk to you about. Can you either rant or not rant? Either one makes news uh, about U.S. news, which came out yesterday. What are your thoughts on U.S. news? I
1: I think um, having some kind of ranking helps sorting. Helps students know where the opportunities are best, and helps. Um, some law firms participating in the national market know where the best students may be. Um, so there's a role for ranking, but you know the U.S. News itself is um, uh, you know it's it's hugely problematic there. And the fact that they kept you know coming up with corrections to it internally yes. and saying, oh wait no, here's the latest. I mean, I I I've always sort of thought the U.S. News um, you know there's kind of a rough sense of what schools fit into what. You know, especially at the sort of quote unquote top twenty, top thirty, there's a rough hi- hierarchy. You, know, you need to look yeah. at sort of the incoming LSAT scores, basically yeah. the schools, and you kind of get the the yeah. the, the basic idea. Um, and then the U.S. News is like every year or two, they'll change the methodology just to make it enough that you want to buy the magazine or <laughs> schools need to invest in it. Students have to see what's the latest, because um, um, if it stayed exactly the same, then that would be pointless. Right. There'd be no. Well, what's the benefit of that? And if it right. if it dramatically shifted every year, you'd think, well, maybe this isn't measuring anything. So so there's like this weird middle ground. The U.S. News magically seems to hit where they change enough to make it interesting, but not so much to sort of discredit the whole idea. Um and and I think there's a role for it. But, you know, some of the many oddities of the U.S. news, the the, the fact that there's it, not just sort of individual rankings, but it's ranked all the way through, you know, t- to a point where you have know, schools that are not competing with each other, um, right. uh, you know, regional schools that do an amazing job educating people for the state bar. And that's fantastic that are put on this national scale where it's like, well, you're, you know, 122 or 105 <laughs> or something like as if that makes any difference for what that school is doing. And um and I have problems with both you know the ABA and the US News in sort of it these are standards which make all law schools try to compete with each other. And I think it would just make so much more sense if we realized that different law schools are doing different things and com- training students for different markets and with different goals. And, and that's awesome. And we shouldn't need to think of everyone. You know, it shouldn't all be cookie cutter. We should have a wider range of different schools. And I think we'd all just be better off than that.
0: I think that's really smart. And that's, that, that's actually my second biggest objection, but it's not my first. My first is mathematicians tell me I, I disown any knowledge of math. I am told, by, which, is why I met, which is why I wrote that piece with Adam Feldman, who did all the math. Um, but I am told... I am told by people that 51 and 99 are statistically—it's not a statistically significant difference under whatever statistics experts use. And I believe that because Georgia State has been everything from 52 to 90 or something, um, and, we're this, and, and, we've, and we've only gotten better. We have a new, I mean, new buildings, more professors, better students, and, and yet somehow it still seems so arbitrary. And the reason for that, I'm told— Is because there is no difference between 54 and 78. There really is not any, you know, so I wish they would go back to the old way. There was a time, I think, when they did like top 25 and then maybe 25 to 50 and then the next 50 and the next 50 and the next 50. Even that's bad for the reasons you said, but it's better than thinking 52 and 77 are different because they're not. I mean, I, I think that's pretty, that's, that's, that's pretty clear. Last question, and thank you so much for being here. I should tell everybody you're here between classes, which is really a nice thing for you to do um if you could change one thing about legal education what would it be one one big thing what would you change
1: Wow um one thing I would change about legal education i actually i uh let's i'd I have to think that's such a big question and i'm <laughs> okay. not i'm not Sure. My, my mind is being blown as I'm listening to this of the, <laughs> okay. of the different things. That okay. You small can change. thing. If you could really change like anything. Yeah. A small thing. Um,
0: um I, I really do view you as kind of an expert on legal education, which is why I asked you that question. I don't, I've not asked that question before to any of the law professors. So um,
1: I would have professors be trained in exams. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great idea. Yeah. I think, One of the weirdest things about legal education is something that's completely hidden from students, students never even think about this, is that when professors are told, here's a class, teach this class, and then give an exam, and they're not told how to write an exam, what to test on, what matters, how to think about a curve, how to think about how to write a question, how to grade a question, what are the different ways of grading, um, how do you really assess students based on what what are you trying to measure, first of all, and (laughs) How can you accurately measure this? And it, it is amazing to me that basically the registrar just says, hand in your grades. And you, And <laughs> They don't know, have no idea what you've done. And you could have spent like a month sweating over it and checking it and double checking it to the point where you're like, these grades really capture what's on paper. Or you could just be like, yeah, whatever, here you go. <laughs> um, and, and there's, a, in my experience, a lot of variation in professors in terms of what they yeah. do. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that this is never... Questioned um, um, or 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 looked into everyone. Just, that as soon as the exams are handed in, it's like it's done. Um, and I, I saw there's a paper. I think uh, Adam Chilton is one of the co-authors at Chicago, who's who's terrific. Um, um, uh, a paper on different grading of different professors. I have to read this paper. It's on my to read file. Yeah. Right. Uh, apparently, they found that actually some professors do have really good grading, reliable grading, and others have more sort of random grading. And and that's one thing that I think you know we. Grades are incredibly important. Uh, and depending on the school and depending on the market of the, you know it all varies. But grades are important because it determines students' opportunities. And I wish we spent more time making sure the way we determine students' opportunities is reliable and thoughtful and real um uh, even if professors don't get any credit for it. it's just it's so important. I wish we could focus
0: it's on. a great. It's a great answer. I have a colleague, uh, Andy Curcio, who has spent much of her career studying and writing about. How poorly law schools test their students, and um, and 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 comp- she has she's very I mean she, her work on it's really good, and, and I have to admit it's even and it's and it's all made worse by the fact that in many first year courses you get one exam, it all comes down to you know one exam, and and then your first year grades count for so much for clerkships. I mean one of the reasons the only reason I'm here today, is I happen to do well on my first year exams because I could spit up a lot of stuff, which got me a clerkship, which got me to Gibson Dunn, all that stuff, you know? I mean, without that, I wouldn't be here today. Um, and I don't know if those exams tested anything worthwhile at all. I mean, you know, who knows? Um, Warren, thank you so much for being here. Just, you and I actually have not crossed paths before. And, and I'm so, I mean, this way. And I'm so glad that we have. And I, I really appreciate you doing this.
1: It was really fun to do. And as I mentioned, I've I loved the show and I love what you're doing. And it was really delightful. And I, I look forward to uh, actually meeting in person when this crazy pandemic is over. I'm going uh, to first round is on me.
0: Well, thank you. And I will be visiting once the pandemic is over. I will be visiting Berkeley. So I'll, I'll take you up on that drink. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Thank you Aaron, very much.